Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's Good Friday message is titled, The Greatest Trade-In. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Recently, the popular automotive website, Edmunds.com, uh, published an article titled, The 50 Worst Cars of All Time. Are you curious to see if your car was on it? Near the top of their list was a vehicle that ranks near the top of almost every worst car made list, and that is the 1987 to 89 Yugo. Imported from Yugoslavia in the late 1980s to early 1990s, the Yugo offered customers an economy class vehicle who otherwise couldn't afford a car. It allowed them to get a car. The biggest reason this pint-sized set of wheels uh, was despised by most automotive experts is that it was made as cheaply as its price tag. Uh, the materials used to build it were from very low quality sources. Uh, the interior had only two air vents and very few buttons. It was the most basic car you could find. Uh, under the hood was a 55-horsepower, screaming 1.1-liter carbureted engine that was smaller than the spare tire it shared the same compartment with. In layman's terms, in other words, it could go from zero to 60 miles an hour in an hour. <laughs> The article describes the Yugo as an even cheaper version of the Fiat 127 that seemed like it couldn't possibly be as awful as the low price suggested, but it was. And another Edmonds reviewer said the only thing the Yugo was better than was walking. Needless to say, the company quickly went out of business and there are only a few Yugos on the road anymore because they're not that durable. But hypothetically speaking, if you owned a Yugo and you were offered a straight up trade for one of the most expensive, perfectly made cars on the market, would you make the trade? Let's say there's no down payment, no financing required, it's even up. Your Yugo for the most expensive, most perfect car on the market. In fact, let's say the trade was for this year's most expensive, most perfect car on the market, just revealed at the Geneva Auto Show this spring. It's a Bugatti La Voiture at nearly $12. million a piece. Now this Bugatti uh, is slightly faster than the Yugo in that it uh, has a 16-cylinder, 1,500-horsepower engine, and it would get you to work or to church or the grocery store a little faster. In fact, if you could afford this Bugatti, you probably could have your groceries delivered. 
but would you make the trade? Well, of course you would. And if you make a trade like that, even those of you that are moms, you wouldn't care where the kids would sit. You wouldn't worry about where the groceries are going to go. That car is a once-in-a-lifetime deal. Well, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ on Good Friday made it possible for him to offer you and I a trade that's too good to refuse. And so with that, I would like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you uh, forgot your Bible, you can grab one from the info table back there. I want you to be able to see a copy of God's Word in front of you. I also want to encourage you to take out the sermon note handout that uh, the ushers were handing out when they greeted you as you came in. There's a brief outline so you can follow along and take notes. The big idea that I am praying you'll take home with you tonight is simply this. Jesus offers the perfect trade-in for your imperfect life. Jesus offers the perfect trade-in for your imperfect life. Uh, the Bible pulls no punches and leaves no doubt at all whatsoever about uh, the Yugo life that we bring into this world when we're born. And that's because the sin nature we inherit from our parents um, makes us willfully rebellious, emotionally warped, according to the scriptures, relationally at odds with others and with God, and spiritually dead. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is urging the believers in Corinth to spread the message of the gospel that can solve this problem, and he's also pleading with the unbelievers in Corinth to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so with that, if you would look at 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 21 with me. I have one verse, I have two points, and uh, I'm going to get a lot out of this verse for you tonight because it is pregnant and bursting with meaning. So Paul says, He made him, for our sake, excuse me, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the first thing that Paul tells us in this verse, and that is, he tells us there's a curse that comes with Good Friday, and the curse is that Jesus got our sinfulness. He got our sinfulness. The cross upon which Jesus died is the perfect intersection of God's relentless wrath and his generous grace. It simultaneously reveals how much God hates sin but loves sinners. And here's why. Notice Paul says in verse 21, for our sake... He, the, the apostle starts the verse with the motive that spurred God to offer up his one and only son for us. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He did it for us because he loves us. Now there was just one problem. 
God is holy, but man is separated from God by his sin. Because God is holy, he cannot allow in his presence sin, nor can he let sin go unpunished. So how can sinners who will never be perfect be reconciled to a God who requires perfection to be in a relationship with him? That's the million-dollar question. Well, that's where Jesus comes in. So Paul continues, he made him to be sin. He refers to God the Father, him refers to Christ the Son. He made him to be sin. It means that God decided to treat his son Jesus like a sinner by giving him the punishment that we deserved instead of us. More specifically, it means that every time we disobeyed our parents, lied, lost our temper, were selfish, uh, had a lustful thought, committed adultery, sought revenge, cheated on a test, abused alcohol or drugs, broke the law, were rude to our kids, um, uh, got angry with God, were anxious, impatient, showed up to church later, didn't show up to church at all, uh, all of our past, present, and future sins were put on Christ, even though he committed none. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. You probably heard the word. It means that Jesus was our substitute. He took our place on the cross and atoned for our sin. Atonement is an Old Testament term that refers to the shedding of blood by an animal or a person in order to make payment for sin. Now, it means that Jesus took our place so that we could have his. However, it does not mean, it does not mean Jesus took part in our sin. That's an important distinction. He did not condone our sin, nor did he give up his moral perfection. This is why Paul clarifies, notice the next phrase in verse 21, who knew no sin. He still knew no sin. The Greek word is an interesting word for knew here, K-N-E-W. The apostle uses the Greek word, it doesn't mean head knowledge of sin. It doesn't mean on an awareness, on an intellectual level. Instead, it refers to the firsthand knowledge or experience of something. It means that Jesus was not acquainted with sin, never participated in sin, never even got close to sin, didn't play games with sin, never even thought about sinning. He didn't have the experience, like, like you and I would say, if you've been to Disneyland, oh yeah, I know Disneyland, I know you go here, you turn here, this is the best place to park, this is the best place to eat. Because I've been there. That's the kind of Greek word that's used it's the knowledge that goes with experience. Jesus didn't have that kind of knowledge. He knew no sin. Therefore, the cross of Jesus Christ is arguably the greatest act of justice in world history because he took care of the world's sins. But it's also the greatest injustice in world history because an innocent man died. J. Oswald Sanders said it better than I could when he wrote this. 
he drank a cup of wrath without mercy so that we might drink a cup of mercy without wrath. So like the hero in an action movie, Jesus Christ says, take me instead of them so that they can live and I'll die in their place. And that's why, by the way, Jesus has always been and always will be the hero of our worship services here at Vanguard because nobody else died in our place but him. So Jesus offers the perfect trade-in for your imperfect life. Here's the second thing that Paul tells us, and that is the blessing of Good Friday, is that we got his righteousness. If you know Christ as your, as your Lord and Savior, you got his righteousness. Uh, Paul says in verse 21, so that in him... Now these four words are important because they frame who gets the benefits of this trade offer. Not only is it a limited time offer, there's only one way to claim the offer. It's in him. It refers to those who have repented of their sin and by faith trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. This trade requires that you and I be in Christ. In Christ is a New Testament term that refers to those who have been born again and have a personal relationship with Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Well, what benefits do they get? Well, he answers that next. That we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is significant because to be righteous in its simplest sense means to be right with God. The root word right, to be morally right with God. So, so the blessing of Good Friday is that Jesus makes it possible for us to get right with or to receive the righteousness of God when we are unrighteous. When we, we do all the things that I mentioned earlier, all the sins and more. This is another reason why the cross upon which Jesus died is the perfect intersection of God's relentless wrath and his generous grace. It simultaneously reveals how much God hates sin and how much he loves a sinner. It's bloody and gory, but it's also beautiful. In his devotional, uh, well, I'm sorry before I say that, tragically, there are many people uh, today that like to talk about grace and mercy without ever bringing up sin. This is tragic because uh, sin has become another forbidden word in our culture, much like Jesus, truth, pro-life, immigration, and traditional marriage. Like those are hot-button issues you just don't bring up. You don't talk about them. Why? Because they're divisive. You know, a fight might break out or something. But people just, they avoid the subject of sin. This is tragic because it, it's not only impossible, it's just impossible to understand God's love and his grace and his mercy without first understanding sin. Because if you take sin out of the equation, God doesn't look as loving. He doesn't look as merciful. He doesn't look as, as gracious. This unbiblical thinking often leads to a false conclusion that people are fine without Christ, but they'd be better if they had him. But they're okay if they don't. 
And that's a lie. And this sort of thinking that kind of causes people to believe that receiving Christ is a luxury, but it's not an urgent need. So you see how the adversary has worked very craftily in our culture to create that. If we just get people to stop talking about sin, they won't appreciate God's love, grace, and mercy, and then the need for Jesus is diminished. You don't need him as the bad. And if we don't talk about hell and we don't talk about wrath, you can still have a good life without Jesus. You'll be fine without him. In his devotion book, Grace, A Bigger View of God's Love, Randy Alcorn addresses this misconception with the precision of a surgeon. He writes this, Tolerance is the world's substitute for grace. This fake grace of indifference negates or trivializes incarnation, redemption, and the need for regeneration. True grace recognizes and deals with sin in the most radical and painful way, and that is with Christ's redemption. God in his grace offers salvation to all people because all people need his salvation. And Christ came precisely because not one of us, not one of us, not one of us is fine without him. Not one. So Jesus offers the perfect trade-in for your imperfect life. So what do we do with this verse that's so bursting with meaning here? Verse 21 of chapter 5, what do we do with it? Well, there's, here's two applications that come to mind. First off, put off the anxiety of perfectionism. Put off the anxiety of perfectionism. One of the many burdens that Jesus offers relief from is the burden of perfectionism. As illogical and unbiblical as it might seem, there are still unbelievers and believers who think they can earn their salvation by being good enough. Please hear me when I say this. You will never be good enough. It's not possible. So stop trying. On the other hand, there are some professing believers who distort the doctrines of God's grace and substitutionary atonement to justify not growing spiritually. Because their thinking is, well, if Jesus relieved me from the burden of needing to be perfect, then I don't need to put forth any effort to become like him because he took my place on the cross and I got his righteousness. That also is unbiblical. The New Testament calls believers to be imitators of Christ and to walk in the same way in which he walked. But the difference is not under our own power but instead with the strength of his grace and the empowerment of his spirit. So put off the anxiety of perfectionism. We are described to be like Christ while keeping in mind we'll never be perfect like him. And he knows that too. And that's where his grace comes in. Here's the second application that comes to mind, and that is to give your life back to Jesus. to give your life back to Jesus. Because Jesus gave all of himself for you, the least you can do is give all of yourself to him. Giving him anything less is to take for granted the sacrifice that he made. 
Look at your Bibles with me back at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to show you a key verse that comes just a few lines before verse 21. It's, it's verse 15. Verse 15. I mean, this just, verse 15 just destroys any self-centered consumerism, easy believism that, that uh, our country likes to, to, to dilute the gospel with. In, in, in verse 15, Paul says, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, might no longer live for themselves, that they might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for him. What's it say in your Bible? For him. Who for their sake died and was raised. So does Jesus have expectations? Yes, he does. The point being is that if you understand your own sinfulness, if you've received Christ by faith and gotten his righteousness, you should want to walk with him and please him and live for him. If you don't have that desire, there's a problem. You misunderstood something in the scriptures. There's a There's some bad theology going on there because Paul articulates Jesus died so that you might no longer live for yourself, but for him. See, living for ourselves is what got us in trouble in the first place. So it leads to the question, if you profess Christ as your Lord and Savior, are you living for him? Would he say you're living for him? And I think it goes without saying, he can do far more with your life than you can. So give your life back to Jesus as a way of saying thank you, Jesus. And put off the anxiety of perfectionism. Well, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ on Good Friday made it possible for him to offer you and I a trade. For our Yugo life, that's too good to refuse. Have you accepted it? Have you taken him up on his offer? Isn't it time you stop living the Yugo life? If you have questions about how to know Christ personally, I'd love to talk to you after the service. If you have questions about how to renew your commitment to Christ, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Jesus offers the perfect trade-in for your imperfect life. Would you join me as I pray? Father, thank you so much for doing the unthinkable so that we might see the impossible. Thank you, Father, that you loved us so much and wanted a relationship with us so much that you would give up your one and only son, not one of many sons, but your only son to die on the cross for our sin. Thank you, Father, that through repentance and faith and a personal relationship with Christ, we can be forgiven. We can have eternal life. We can have peace with you. We can have purpose and a life that is meaningful. Father, please, would you make that real to us again this weekend as we remember your son's sacrifice, and then on Sunday, his resurrection. 
please, Lord, do whatever it takes to uh, get a hold of our hearts so that we would not take for granted what Jesus did. We love you and we thank you in Christ's powerful name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.